We're going to start in Philippians today. Philippians chapter 1. Paul's writing and says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you, all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart as much as both in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with the affections of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve all things that are excellent. Say excellent with me. That you may approve all things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now we're talking about Paul here in prison, writing to the church. The Lord gave me specific instructions this morning, early this morning, on what he wanted me to share. You know, Gary almost robbed all the thunder this morning, but... (laughs) He didn't use my verses, but verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for furtherance of the gospel, so that it became evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. So Paul now has given them a sign that maybe he's in chains, not because he's a bad preacher, or because God's hand isn't off him, but maybe he's in change because he's defending the gospel. And that things, even when they don't look good, God's still working. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. Now he's talking about the preachers out there who are using his name, and some are using his circumstances to slaughter his name, and others are using his circumstances and praying for him. The former preach from selfish ambition, not sincerity, supposing to add affliction to my chains. So the ones who are preaching selfishly and against him, and basically they're just saying, look at this man, are you going to keep following him? Why are you listening to him? You know, Paul was a keeper of a standard, When there's a a preacher war, it's usually over people. In other words, I want you to like me and stop liking Gary. Because, you know, you can't like us both. Because your loyalties go one place. So, I mean, you can like us both. But, you know, I I notice you like Gary more than me. So I'm looking at a few specific people. I'm targeting them. So for you to listen to me, why are you going to get Gary's advice off what I just told you? I just told you something that God said, and you went to Gary... Why would you do that? You need to just come to me and let me tell you what's what. So the only way I can be your only 
preacher is to destroy Gary's image in your mind. And if I can get you to disconnect from Gary, who God probably placed in your life as a, a safety net, you know, and there's many times I'll be preaching, some of you will look at me and you look over for Gary to see if he's nodding or looking odd at me, you know. Well, that's your safety net. God has them there to keep you from going off course. Well, I need to dislodge your loyalty from him. You know, we're all loyal to Christ, but we have, God puts people in our life for reasons. And so I will begin to discredit Gary and find things to get you to stop trusting in him so you'll trust in me. We have unity in this church. We cheer each other on. But in Paul's circumstance, he didn't have unity. He had preachers who were preaching with him and encouraging him and believing with him. Then he had preachers who had turned against him and were using his circumstances to discredit his message. And that's really what the enemy was trying to do. And then now you got preachers agreeing with the enemy at a selfish ambition, trying to dislodge the loyalty of people to Paul. And Paul's message was a protector to keep them on course. See, if you take a, a guy who wants to be happy in this life, he'll find a preacher who will tell him how to be happy in this life. But there's one thing about following God that all of you are struggling with, and that is that you're not in charge. You don't get to decide what makes you happy. You have to accept what he says. In other words, God's purpose in your life is to lead you and guide you for his purposes what he thinks best. Not God's purpose in my life to make me happy, to give me good reward on this earth, which many believers, that's how they live. Well, Paul's message was one of mortification and death and laying down your life. And so when that conflicted with other preachers, let's listen to this. And it's really quite amazing to hear Paul's heart here. In verse 16, the former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chain. So, kicking me when I'm down. But the latter, out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So the latter see this as a fight of the enemy against me, not as a failure of me in following God. I'll pause there again, because some of you have this image that because you're struggling, you're failing in your faith. And here's Paul being very clear that a lot of his struggles, even the, especially the ones in prison, we're not talking about sickness or disease here, but the, like the struggle to walk in your calling. God, why am I not? I could probably <laughs> take what you know, and you listen to some preacher, any preacher on the radio or TV, and you think, well, how come I know that and he doesn't know that? Why do I know this stuff? Where these preachers who are well-known don't even know some of the basics that I've learned just from sitting under Pastor Dave and Gary. You know, so when we say the word like born again, when I say the word to you, born again, well, there's a thousand messages that you've heard that compile in your knowledge of what born again means to you. So you have a deeper understanding from the born again trail, from all the teachings here that have come forth to help you have that revelation and understanding where another guy, he thinks born again is just, I have a little Jesus running around in me. And, you know, praise God, I'm going to heaven. That's all they know. So you have a much more, a deeper understanding of where you stand compared to other people. And uh, I often say to people when they're concerned, you know, I only prayed 15 hours last week. Well, yeah, shame on you. You should do more than that. 
You know, I'm, I'm kidding. But what I say to them is, do you know that that's great and keep pressing to your goal? But do you know that you probably in those 15 hours prayed more in tongues than most preachers do in a lifetime? Do you realize that? That I've been around preachers my whole life and preachers outside of the prayer center theology or philosophy of praying in the Holy Ghost. And most of them, praying in the Holy Ghost is something you just do on Sunday. It's not a practice you do. In fact, they're the ones who will tell you, if you pray in tongues too much, you'll go crazy. Don't pray in tongues too much. Because they haven't benefited from the tongues they've prayed. Once you pray in tongues enough to benefit from it, you don't let go of it. You're like, are you crazy? Would I let go of that? That's, my, that's what's teaching me how to overcome things. So this is what I love about Paul. The former preached Christ, verse 16, from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice and will rejoice. So even in the preachers who are belittling Paul, he's saying, well, at least they're preaching Christ in that. You know, that's good. You know, he's not going to destroy them. You know, Paul had a heart to uh, be able to withstand the personal attacks, to stay on the course, to follow God, which you will have problems trying to get everyone to like you, trying to get anyone, everyone to understand you. Because it's saying here that some people, even if it's out of their selfish ambition, there's a lot of people who won't understand the course you're on. Because you have something in your life that most Christians don't, or let me say, that many Christians don't have. And that is your willingness to obey God at all costs. Many believers, they pull the plug. They stop. They jump off the ship when they get tired. It's okay to believe God for something, that you can do until you're tired of waiting for it to happen. So when God starts to lead you down a path in your calling, and you say, I got prophecies of my calling, I have visions and dreams, I have the word that says we're supposed to be able to do this and do that, why am I just sitting here? Why don't I just go and do God? Why are you not moving me forward? And God is, if you want to know stubborn, there's no one more stubborn than God. Once he tells you something, he won't change his mind. You can go this way at it. You can go that way at it, trying to get him to agree that there's an easier path. And over the years, I've seen many, many people, as have you, who have got tired of waiting for God to give them the thing that he promised them. And so they finally say, I'm done waiting. I've seen many people believing for a a spouse who've been praying and waiting for a good Christian spouse, get tired of waiting for a good Christian spouse. There's no good man around here, so I'm going to go date an unsaved guy and bring him into church. They fix it, and they find that you will find a guy if you want to, just may take away from your future. And I see many people in the promises of God, in things that they can fix, just go fix it and give up on waiting for God. That's something that you and I are on a path that says, God is first in my life. His will is what matters. He knows what's best for me. And there are seasons where he says to you, I want you to overcome this. And the reason he wants you to overcome it is so that he can take you to the next place. And so you can go to all the seminars, all the conferences, 
all the anointed preachers who are promising you the next level. This is the next level conference. Come and get into the next level. And you'll walk up and they'll promise you anointing. I got anointing on me to lay hands on you to get you to the next level. Come on and let me prophesy to you. You can stack up all the prophecies, preachers, anointing, everything you want as a reason to go to God and say, God, I'm ready for the next level. And God will say, well, did you do what I told you to do? Well, no, I don't need that because I'm all, I got the anointing of the next level. And he will always stick you right where he said, first, I want you to overcome this. I want you, and it, it's not always sin. It could be a wrong thinking in your life. It could be pride in your life to have ownership of your life. It could be as simple as taking what God does for you as a way of feeling good about who you are. And God wants you to look at him as the reason you feel good about you, who you are, not the things that he does through you. So there's a place in your walk that many Christians have removed from their life, and that is that God is in charge of your life. That I've given my rights to a big house, my rights to a a nice car, I've given that up to follow God. When I asked Christy to marry me, I wanted to make sure she knew what she was getting into. Because there are some people who don't know what to get into. They, there's some people where they look at marriage like, hmm, trying to not get in trouble, stay on course today. We had one young man in Bible college. He's a good guy, really sweet guy, good guy, but just kind of a, a good guy, you know. But he tried for years to get girls to date him, and none of the girls were interested in him, which we couldn't figure out because he was a good-looking guy. But he was kind of like a, a soft guy, like really nice. He liked to do artsy stuff. And, but he's a strong, big, strong buck guy and guy. But he couldn't get the girls to date him. And that was one of the problems we had was the second-year guys were already rejected by the, in their first year. All the girls rejected these guys. They stuck around and came to second-year Bible college. Well, every year we'd have a whole new crop of students come in and all wide-eyed and excited about serving God. And these second-year guys who were already rejected by the girls who knew them, would go and start chasing after the first-year girls. And they learned to paint themselves in a, a more better picture than they really were. Because once you got to know them, the girls weren't interested in these boys. And so some of them would try prophesying, you know, and, and being extra spiritual. They'd stand in the row in front of the girl and lift their hands up really big. And it's like, man, you haven't lifted your hands in a year. What are you doing? You know, hallelujah, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. She wants a man of God. So this guy was been around for four years and couldn't find a girl. And he's a good guy. But we had a rule, first-year girls, first years, we're not allowed to date. And so he started to pursue a really pretty, uh, naive first-year girl. And it became kind of a, a fight because... He, Uh, Well, he wouldn't stop. And my concern wasn't so much that he would do her wrong. My concern was that his vision of having a wife was he wanted a woman who would come and live with him. In other words, your purpose once I marry you is to be mine. But see, you're a woman of God. Even your husband doesn't own you. Only God owns you. And this is something that you have to train your husband. (laughs) That, no, no, I've got a contract here from a marriage of what I am required, but giving my life over to you is not required. We serve God in my household, 
And husband, you're going to serve God, and I have a right to have my voice of what serving God is. There's a lot of young people, they're, they're 25 years old, and their parents are trying to tell them what to do. Like, what do you mean? Well, you know, I have to honor my mother and father. I said, well, you honor your mother and father after you pay your bills. If you're paying your own bills and living on your own, you get to choose how you honor your father and mother. It's a respect thing. It's not an ownership thing. Now, you know, I birthed you, kid. You're going to pay me off. You know, you're going to pay my bills, and you're going to do what I tell you to do the rest of your life. You know, you have to train your parents. Once I'm on my own, thank you for all you've done, but I have to follow God. My mom would have me living next door, if not in her house, at this moment of my life. And she'd put up with Christy and the kids in the other room. But that would be my mom's will for me if she had the power to tell me what to do. When I asked Christy to marry me, I said, Listen, I can't promise you a nice house or nice cars or nice things because that's not my goal in life. My goal in life will be to follow God. I said, but if you marry me, I will get you rewards in heaven. I can promise you that. And that's all she needed to hear. So she hasn't been overly surprised, maybe a little surprised, on her walk with God of how it's taken us to where we don't make decisions by what we feel is best. We make decisions out of his will and his will alone. And the Apostle Paul is being very clear here. In following God, it took him to prison. Well, that wasn't a failure. That was part of following God. Well, God, doesn't he want me to be happy? Well, it depends what you define as happiness. If you're happy in the rewards that you'll get from him, sure. But if you mean happiness means I get to do what my flesh wants and make it happy. That young man ended up marrying that girl, moving her off, and they're happy. They have a good marriage. They've got beautiful kids. But... It's all about him. The whole marriage is about him. And she had a call on her life. I got in trouble in fights over it because I was trying to protect the call on her life. He saw it as, you belong to me, so now you're going to live your life, and you're going to serve my purpose. And they're not, I mean, they're Christians. They go to church, but, you know, they're just living like everyone else. And many Christians, that's how they live. They remove God's ability to be in charge of their life. I've watched some couples where the boy is serving God, and it goes both ways. Passionate about serving God. And some little lady comes along and sweeps him off his feet. And then the rest of his life, he's building a nice house and a nice garage and a boat for the weekend and, and fun stuff for the weekend. She saw him as the tool And this is very worldly. This is very much what the world does. A good, healthy world marriage counselor will tell you how to have a happy marriage by fulfilling each other's needs. That you look to your wife to meet your needs, and your job as a wife is to meet your husband's needs. I have a saying that says if two lonely single people get married, they become two lonely married people. That who's supposed to meet your needs individually should be God, not your spouse. Not your spouse is to lead you. God is to lead you. But I've seen many couples where one will be passionate for God. The opposite sex comes and whoosh, And next thing you know, they're living their life for family and serving God. But it's really for family. And that sounds good, but it really, that's against Scripture. Oh, let me try that again. <clears throat> that sounds good. Family first, 
God first, then family, then work. You know, we have our list of things. God loves your family more than you do. He loves your children more than you ever could. And you think you can. He loves them more than you. He loves you more than you love yourself. So why would it be God first, then family? It should be God. That's it. Everything we do is inside of that because we trust him with our needs. We trust him with our family. Your spouse may say, well, listen, I'll be happy if I have this much money. Well, that works unless you're Paul and, you're, you know, let's say Paul was married and he's in prison. What's he going to do? Sorry, baby, I got, got arrested again. If you just quit preaching, you quit getting arrested. We got to put God first. And that he has the right to tell us what to do. And uh, John asked me uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it really got me thinking. He said, who do you respect as a man? And I said, well, give me a little more, you know, like, what do you mean? Like, I have, I have respect for all kinds of people for different reasons. And it came down to, like, being a father. Who do you respect as a father? I began to think, well, I know this guy's got a great family. He's got a great marriage. But they really don't put God first. They put the family first. You know, and it's easy to get your family going along a certain way if you reward them, right? But what if following God conflicts with your spouse? Well, now you've got a little bit of uh, explaining to do, a little bit of fighting to do. There's one man, he was, um, he was a, a wealthy guy in a church, a good man, loved God, went to church faithfully, a very wealthy man owned a couple of businesses in town, and his wife passed away. Well, once you know it, all the single ladies in the church, you know, they gave respect, gave him enough mourning time, started to dress up a little extra special, hoping to catch his attention. You know, these were older ladies his age. He wasn't in the childbearing age limit, but he was. Obviously, probably going to need a new spouse because the one passed away. So all the all the single ladies were excited, dressed up, and were praying. And he, you know, he was looking for a wife. After a while, you know, men, some guys like to get married and like to be married, so they get married fairly quickly. Not that I would ever do that, but you know, there's some guys that do that. And and so his wife passed away, and and so they were all dressing up, trying to get his attention in church. My mom said, "Well, this one lady came in. And he went on a fast." And after the fast, this one girl came in, barely saved, came in and rocked his world, snagged that boy up, went and got him. While all the other church ladies were watching and hoping and praying, she just came in and took him. And he went off into some, you know, kind of worldliness a little bit, you know, because she came and snatched him. I mean, that was her vision of a man. I got to be a man. Your job is to take care of me. And I get to live my dream, and your job is to help me live my dream. So there are many things that are okay in the world that the world, the world system has put together. But for me, when I think of a father, well, who do I respect as a father? You know, I have to look at not just men who give their time to their family and men who are loving and forgiving and men are in, in marriage or be protectors and providers. That's our main role in a marriage. And to make sure our family is following God and serving God. And so, a man who is willing to follow God 
and teach his family that there's no varying from following God. And be a good father is the man that I respect. Not one who has a great family because he's removed the pressure of following God. Well, if I remove that, I don't have to go to the jungles of Africa or give up my time outside of Sunday morning and Sunday night. You know, my life, our direction of our marriage is to follow God. We had one lady, young lady, she was a, always had it on her heart to be a missionary and also wanted to be married. It's, it can be so frustrating. And I remember she found a guy, and he was a good guy, but it was very clear that his goal was to marry her and take her back home, and they live on the farm for the rest of their life. And that was his goal. And I said to her, I said, listen, this is a good guy. I mean, she was just excited that he liked her. I said, this is a good guy, but I I think you're going to have problems. I said, because you've always talked about being a missionary, and you love missions and been on missions. This boy wants to marry you and just make you have a bunch of kids and live on the farm. I said, you're going to have a problem down the road when that desire to be a missionary, that calling comes forward, and... He doesn't agree with it. I said, you're going to have a problem. But this is a good guy. He'll take care of you, and he'll take good care of you. Well, sure enough, she, you know, once they're in love, it's really hard to change their mind. And uh, they, well, they say love is blind, but marriage is an eye-opener. And so she went off and got married, and sure enough, like a prophet. She's a good farm girl, good wife, great kids, never been on mission, mission trips. Gave up her calling to be a good wife. Listen, that's worldly. That's worldly advice. If you quit pressing so much into God, then you might have a happier marriage. Oh, that's why I'm having a hard time. Your kids will respect you more if you just go out and do this and do that. You have to follow God. And you have to train everyone around you. You can mess with anything. I'll tweak whatever I can tweak in my life to be better at being a husband, at being a father, at being a friend, but I will not tweak following God. That's the one thing that cannot be touched. My life first comes with following God. You can't be my friend if you don't accept that because you you won't like me. You won't like me when we want to make plans. Hey, can we go out? Let's Let's go camping two months from now. I can't promise that. Why not? Well, the way I live is I have to get approval from someone. Well, tell your wife. No, well, I need her approval too. But I have to get approval from God first. Well, what do you mean? It's not going to hurt anything. It may not hurt anything, but I have to first go to him. My life is in his hands. Now, I'm saying all this because we've seen from Paul, he's using himself as an example, and he's about to address this thing in the church. We'll go to chapter 2, and just for time's sake, uh, read some of this. Verse 1. He's telling them all to have the same heart. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort in love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. You know, we can think that unity, being like-minded in a marriage, in a family, is you and I sitting down and negotiating. Hey, I need this from you, and I need that from you. 
and we negotiate together until we're in agreement that we're both happy. Except there's a problem. I cannot give up obeying God. I cannot give up following God. And let's be clear, ladies, you're equally a partner in a marriage. You have a right to make your man submit to the will of God as much as he has a right to get you to submit to the will of God. So when a boy tries to pull the rank on you in marriage, make sure it's only what he's allowed to pull. If he tries to pull rank on you, say, well, submit, woman. You know, I think my dad said that to my mom one time, and that was it, you know, just once, you know. <laughs> you know, she wasn't even saved. <laughs> you know, so when your husband tries to pull rank on you, you can pull rank on him and say, I'll submit to the will of God through you. But if what you're saying is against the will of God, then uh-uh, because I'm equal partnership responsible to make sure that we're in the will of God. Because your calling, ladies, is just as important as the boy's calling. It's not any less. And when you get married, God stands there, and his design is not for one person to be the ruler of the house. It's for all people, the wife, the kids, they all have a call. It's the husband's job to make sure that we're in the call of God. And so you have a right to call him and say, no, that is, I don't believe that's the will of God. Until you, I will follow you as you follow Christ. But you deviate off. Listen, there's husbands who've taken good Christian wives and said, listen, I'll go to your church and I'll give up. But you have to come one Sunday a month out with my friends on the boat into the bar. You do that once a month, I'll come to church three times a week. Or three times and the other three times in the month. So there's guys who try to break down your power, your strength to hold on to the will of God in negotiating under the guise that we need to be in unity. Well, that's not at all what Paul is saying, that like-mindedness is not a negotiation of us deciding together what's right. Like-mindedness, according to Paul here, he tells us in verse 5, let this mind be in you. So when Paul says, be like-minded, he's saying, I want to tell you the mind that you and I are supposed to be like. It's not a negotiation of what we want in life. Because there's, listen, there's marriages where both spouses don't want to deal with their own stuff. And so the way they negotiate is, listen, I won't bother you about your stuff if you don't bother me about my stuff. And so they live their life and marriage happily and dysfunctionally. You ever see couples who are truly dysfunctional together (laughs) and they're happy together? Well, they've made a deal. I won't ask you to get better if you don't ask me to get better. If you don't expect me to press in, I won't expect you. And so they they find a happy medium. And no one's following God in that house. They're just serving each other's flesh. But there's a walk with God that all your friends, everyone in your life is going to be irritated because if they're not wanting to follow God to the level you are, you're going to irritate them because you won't accept them as being ones who can, that your life isn't about helping them. You know, hey, I give you my time. What kind of friend are you that you can't come, you know, and do this? There's some families where they're so... in tight. Some cultures are like this. Once you're 20 years old, you're required to live in the same town. 
and be it everyone's birthday, every cousin, every niece's birthdays, and God help you if you miss it. You're being unfaithful. You're being a bad child because you're no longer here to serve the family. That's your purpose. That's why I birthed you, kid, to be here for the rest of my life and take care of me. But what happens when you start to follow God is he takes charge of your life and takes you on a different course. My mom complains all the time. You told me you were going to the United States for one year. And that's what I told her because that's what I thought. But someone took charge of my life and superseded the rights of the family. Because you can do both. You can serve God and be a great father, be a great mother, be a great child. You don't have to give up following God. If someone in your life is requiring you to give up that strength to follow God, then you have to fight them and say, I will not give that up. Well, I'll leave you then. Then you'll have to leave me. A lot of women go through this. A lot of married women, they get passionate for God. And I remember Pastor Dave, you know, would be preaching and there'd be a new couple in the church. And their one's really passionate for God and excited about God. And Pastor Dave would say, if you want to pray and you say you don't have time, sell your big house and get a tiny house. <laughs> get rid of the nice car, get a junker car. You know, and he'd say stuff like that. Get rid of an extra TV. You don't need a TV in every room. But one of the couple would go, oh, amen. Amen. We can have more God. I'm so excited. And the other one sees their world start to crumble, that they've they built this world and you were part of it. And they start seeing them. Hey, I, what do you mean? I don't get to be in charge anymore. Some spouses are so crippled because their other, the other one has manipulated them and positioned them and controlled them in a sense. And, and you gave them the control, but have belittled you so much that you've questioned whether you're saved or not sometimes. You question whether you're okay to follow God or not. I can go on and on about the destructiveness of people trying to manipulate other people within marriages and trying to break your ability to obey God. And some really hurting men and women out there who are trying to follow God, but their spouse is so stubborn. They're, they're playing such hardball against them. I've watched them. Some of them were good Christians, but then when it came down to God's will being difficult and having to lay down things, then you, I've watched them buck up and fight the spouse and say, well, I know I led us this far, but I'm changing my mind. And that's where your spouse is supposed to stand up to you and say, toughen up. Don't be such a wimp. Oh, help me, Jesus. I wasn't planning on speaking on that part. It's so important. Paul even said, contrary to the Old Testament, no, it's okay for you to stay single. It's better not to marry. So you can follow God. You get married, it's going to add trouble to your life. Work. <laughs> Not different work. Like getting married doesn't mean, oh, I don't have to follow God now. Okay. I'll give the example I gave last week. I think it was this strong millionaire, rich man, a full-grown like man. He was in construction. A man's man, rich, wealthy business guy. You know, a business guy will cut your throat to get your money kind of guy. And he was telling me about this church he went to. And I knew the pastor was very controlling. And a large church of 10,000 people. 
And he said to me, he said, yeah, my wife went and I, we went to that church and first service, we sit up closer to the front and we had to leave. I had a meeting at 12. So we left at like 10 minutes before service was out. So we got up while the pastor was talking and started to go up the aisle. And, and as we we're walking, he stopped the whole service in front of 10,000 people and said, hey, hey, you, where are you going? And we stopped and turned around and the whole church was looking at them. First visit, by the way. And the man, the preacher said, get down to your seat and you don't leave until we're closed. You don't leave till we're dismissed. And they went back down and you would have thought, well, he's a business guy. He would have done it just for that day and never gone back. Asked for his check back on the way out, you know. But no, he lived in that church for 20 years. Even controllers, people who control, are quick to submit under people who are stronger than them. And because there's something about someone else being responsible for you that makes you feel like you're not at fault if you don't follow God. Well, ladies, you can never stand before God. Your husband will not be standing there when you stand before God. And you will not be able to say, well, my husband said no. And God will say, what did I say? <laughs> yeah, but if I would have stuck to what you said... He would have done this, this, and this. Well, let him pitch a fit. Or vice versa. I'm trying to make sure I'm equally offending both male and husbands and wife today. Well, there's some of us who we like that control. And that's why we have churches. Like this guy had a church of 10,000. He was strong. Well, the reason was in their culture, the men were looking for someone stronger so they could submit to that. When we stand, when we go to heaven, do you understand there's no, there's no apostles in heaven? There's no pastors in heaven? There's no prophets in heaven? We're all equal in heaven. And so it's important that you understand that God wants you to listen to him. And not to give that over to a prophet, to a, a pastor or an evangelist, and put them in that place in their, your life that they are over you and they supply you things. Many churches are built under the pastor saying, Hey, I got a crowd of a hundred people. You come and I'll put you in front of the hundred people. And they're offering you a position to buy you to be part of their leadership. It's like, okay, now you are my promoter. There's many people that run away from me when they come to me and they want something. And I say, listen, if you come to me, I'm only going to give you work give you stuff to do in prayer and tell you to pray. That's it. I'm not your promoter. I have no power to promote you. I have no power to give you anything. That all has to come from God. Well, there's a lot of people put pastors in the position of promoting them, giving them a position of leadership, giving them a position to preach and teach. And listen, if God wants you to preach and teach and sing, it will happen. No man could stop it even if they wanted to stop it. I asked Pastor Dave, and I asked all the preachers, but I asked Pastor Dave one time, this question I asked all the preachers. How do you start your ministry? How do you get people to, ask, to how do you go to speak? And I heard many different opinions about it. You know, well, you just need to call up, go to the phone book when you go to a town and look up Word of Faith churches. And this is the advice that was given to me now. Call all the Word of Faith churches. And say, I need to talk to the pastor, please. I'm Alan Taylor. I'm, I've served under Norville Hayes. I met Kenneth Hagen. Say those names. And say, I'm in town. I have a special word for you, for your church. I'd like to give it. 
And he said, out of the churches, you probably get one or two churches out of one out of ten that will have you come speak. And after you speak, you, you talk to the pastor and say, Pastor, was I anointed? Was that good for your church? Yeah. Well, do you have any other pastors that would like to have me preach? And please, can I get their information and use you as a reference? And they were using business techniques within the church. And every pastor knows that on slow Sundays, there's multiple evangelists that call saying, Hey, you need me? I have a word for you. God woke me up with a word for your church. Sure, he did. And I had many different ideas and opinions on how to start my ministry. And when I asked Pastor Dave, I said, Pastor Dave, how do you start preaching? He laughed. I said, Alan, if they're not calling you, God doesn't want you to preach. And that made me do one thing when I accepted that as part of God's plan, path. If I wanted to walk in my calling, I had to let go of my ability to make things happen. There was only one place to go to get what I thought I wanted, and that was to my father. And he gave me the same answer every time I went. I want you to deal with this. I want you to deal with this. I want you to deal. And he'll wait you out. He'll wait you out till you get to heaven. Well, God, why didn't you give it to me? Hey, I've been waiting on you. What are you talking about? He's waiting on us. So Paul tells them to be like-minded. And he tells them what it means in verse 5 and 6. Let this mind be in you. So he tells them, let this mind be in you. And then you grow to this mind. You adapt to this mind. It's not negotiations that we're in agreement Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming in likeness of man. And being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Please say cross. So here he says to be like-minded, be like Jesus, where he humbled himself, even though he was... He was the Son of God. He humbled himself to do the will of another, even to the death of the cross. Talk about excellence of ministry. Now we're going to go over to chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious. But for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, when I say flesh, in our American-type minds, we instantly think fornication, sin, things like that. Fleshly sin, lust, all those things. But understand, Paul wasn't raised in our culture. And his testimony was not one of, yeah, praise God, I found Jesus. And I was a drug addict and... And addicted to this and that. And I lived 20 years doing this and sin. And, and Jesus found me. Praise God. You know, that's, that's a good testimony. I had young people used to say, I feel bad I don't have a good testimony. And I'd tell them, well, the best testimony is I found God at a young age and didn't have to go through all that garbage. <laughs> that's the best testimony to share. To let people know it's possible. Well, Paul's testimony wasn't one of, I got found on drugs His testimony was, yeah, I memorized the first five books of the Bible by age of 12. I lived my life in holiness. Lived my life under the law. Was obedient and was 
uh, well-versed. I studied, I gave my time to study and learning about the gospel, gave myself to serving God. But he's clear it was the wrong version of God. So then he says, verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Well, what things were gained to me that I've counted as loss for Christ? Yet indeed, I also count all these things. So see, when he says he's counting these things as loss, he's not talking about drug abuse, alcohol abuse, partying, smoking. He's talking about all the stuff he did to earn favor with God. A life of religion. But what things were counted to me, I counted loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I've also counted all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish or dung in the King James, that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Now here he is in prison, and he's writing about dying. And I wonder if you've been booked on the preacher's circuit of prosperity preachers. His message of death. See, you're not dying to something valuable. You're not losing something important. You're losing something that's valueless when it comes to the kingdom of God. And the part of you that's complaining is your natural man. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus ought to lay hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward or high call of God in Christ Jesus. And this is the verse that I want to focus on right now. I press towards the goal of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. When I was praying in the Holy Ghost and in, in, in Bible college, or in, I remember I was sitting on my bed in my dorm room by myself, and, and the presence of God came into the room, and it was like he sat right beside me. And I heard in the Spirit, I heard God say to me, I need you to choose today. Are you going to be a normal Christian, or are you going to press for the high call? And those were his words. And I was about to say, the high call. Because to me, the high call of God was big ministry, successful in ministry, worldwide traveling, Alan Taylor Ministries International, you know. <laughs> that was the high call. Pursuit of greatness in the kingdom of God, effectiveness, being recognized. Many of you have not been recognized, but let me just say this. Many of you have not been recognized by your family in your effort to follow God. You've been belittled. Many of you have not been recognized by your friends in your passion to follow God. You've been belittled. 
Many of you have not been recognized by your spouse, by your family, by your friends, by your parents or your grandkids. They don't come and say, I just respect you for following God. But listen, God sees it. And that's who you want to honor. God appreciates it. You've earned respect from men and women around the world who've laid their life down similarly. And like Paul, you won't get their recognition. You may get their attack. That they're blaming you. Well, if you just did this, if you just did that, you know, obviously you're not following God right because look at all the struggle you're going through. I was brought up for years. I started 18, 19 years old in church. and 19, I was a full-time youth pastor. So I've been dealing with pastors a long time. And there's, there's years where God had me sit in one place and do very little for self-promotion. And people don't recognize sometimes if you don't pat yourself on the back, no one will pat you on the back. And I would, I would sit there and watch people who I would think, I'm a better preacher than that guy. I'd have more miracles in my services than a lot of the guys who were very famous. But God wanted me to stay where I was. Well, that's his business. It's not my business. My recognition has to come from him. My approval has to come from him, not from those around me. And so many of you have been in the will of God and not recognized and feel not recognized. Don't worry, God recognizes it and he appreciates it. Where am I? Chapter 3. I press toward the goal, verse 14, thank you. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward or high call of God in Christ Jesus. So when he sat beside me, said, I need you to choose today, be a normal Christian or chase the high call. He was asking for my approval to take me down the high call of God. Well, I thought in that moment, of course, high call. But before I could say, yeah, the high call, he showed me in an instant what that meant. And it was not traveling on first class on jets and preaching around the world and having uh, my face on advertisement for conferences and being invited from conference to conference. That was not what the high call meant. He showed me in a moment what the high call meant. And he showed me a life of prayer and fasting. Of giving my life over to these things. Completely letting go of the ability in the natural to make my life happen. And I paused. And I said, God, I I can't even find the want to. To live that lifestyle. (laughs) I don't want to live a lifestyle of prayer and fasting and worship. I don't want that. And laying down my life. I can't even find the want to. To say I want to. I can't find it. I said, but if you'll help me, I choose the high call. And he left. And do you know from that day to this day, we're still on that mission. And as much as I say, well, do I have enough? I'm ready to roll. Let's, let's roll. Let's go. He keeps bringing me back around to those original instructions. You know, why do we have the blueprint for 2020? It's because we were losing our focus on the blueprint from the beginning. That blueprint doesn't change. The blueprint for 2020, because we were losing focus. Like, okay, I've done enough. Transformation is not a one-moment thing. 
And it doesn't stop. It goes for the rest of eternity. You're going to learn more about who you are in Christ. A billion years from now, you're going to be transformed even closer to who God is. You'll learn something. God, I never knew that about you. You're amazing. Verse 14. I press toward the goal for the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. So the goal, the high call of God, is a place of loss, a place of mortification. It's a place of powerlessness. That God is all you have. If you need something, God is all you have. If you want something, God is all you have. Well, God's taken too long. God is all you have. Go tell him. He'll continue to take you around to the instructions he gave you. He won't go beyond that until you've overcome it. Many of us, we do the bait and switch with God. God says, I want you to deal with this. And you try to give him something else. Well, I'll tell you what. Instead of me facing this, let me give this to you. When he had us face our giant of finances, I remember saying, God, please let me work. I've worked since I've been 13. Let me work. I'll even double tithe. I'll give you extra money. The moment you stop obeying is the moment you start sacrificing more to make up for your lack of obedience. But it's better to obey than sacrifice. Amen? I press toward the goal of the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, let us have this mind. What's the mind he's talking about that we're to be like-minded in? That God's in charge. That we live a life of the high call of God where we've cut loose and let go and count as dung any good works we've accumulated to justify our walk with God. God is all we have. Gary talked this morning about laying your life, putting your flesh on the altar. And out of Romans 12 was part of his message. And here in verse uh, 16. Nevertheless, to the degree that you've already attained, let us walk in the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example. And note that those who so walk, as you have us for pattern... For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So everything Paul preached in here, I'm closing now, everything Paul preached in here was about you facing the cross for your life. You facing the cross, taking your flesh. Your flesh is not just the sin. It's not just drinking and smoking. Your flesh, your outward man, is every plan, every design, every attempt to lead you, to tell you how to live, how to be happy, to take that flesh and place it on the cross and nail it on the cross every day and say, you don't tell me who I am, only God tells me who I am. And here it says that these preachers who used to walk with them are now preaching, and he says that they, uh, whom even weeping, they are now enemies of the cross. So they are preaching a message that has taken away the cross for you to walk in. You don't have to go lay your life down so much. I'm back to marriage again. And and I've heard husband and wife both tell me this is the argument from their spouse. You shouldn't be so committed to God. You shouldn't be so passionate about God. Now, I can understand if you're neglecting 
caring for your family. That's different. If in the marriage, you can't just abandon your responsibilities and say, I'm going to go to church. <laughs> See you later. And I'm going to go win souls. So I got to do the Lord's work, honey. So you're on your own. Only if God has told you to do things. But I've had so many hard, horrible conversations with both sides of the coin, male and female, where the one spouse is upset because they can't dislodge the other one from following God. So they begin to manipulate. And if they can't buy you out, offer you more things, hey, honey, if we just do this move here or do this, then I'll get you a bigger house. I'll be able to do this and this and this. all the negotiating that our flesh does to not be in the will of God. And then if that doesn't work, they begin to manipulate. They begin to get bitter and take it out on you, punish you, and try to starve you out. They're enemies of the cross. In other words, they've given up on going to their cross. They're trying to get you to also give up on going to your cross so you can live life in the way maybe in the manner that they consider being happy. I remember visiting my parents down in Yuma, Arizona. And there had a thousand little trailers in this one park. And Yuma, Arizona goes from 100,000 people in the summertime to a million people in the winter. Because all the snowbirds come down and they, they all come and they live in nice little trailers and beautiful weather for the, the winter. They stay out of the snow. And you look at that and there's people who have made good plans for their life and they live in a nice trailer and there's people who live in the back of their pickup but they're there, they're happy to be there, you know. And the world has systems and plans for you to live a good life and to, if you're smart in the world system, you can retire well and have a nice life because they don't have a God, a Father, who's watching out for them. They don't have a Father who's leading them. So let's be clear, the world needs those plans and those systems to succeed. Otherwise, you will starve to death and you will have a miserable future if you don't follow the world's systems. Because they don't have someone leading them. They're all on their own. Gary preached this morning how Jesus even said, the devil is your father. (laughs) You know, the world is without a good father. (laughs) They are on their own and all they have is to pass on the natural wisdom of how to succeed and take care of yourself. That's because they don't have a father to lead their steps, to guide their steps. They don't have that. You don't have that excuse. You have a father. You've been born again in him. You have a father who wants to lead your steps and guide your steps and take you down a path where you, you have to, all of us have to go down the path that will come to a cross that we have to face every day. There's no walk of God that you're going to find from God. You might find a gospel that's against the true gospel. That's what Paul was talking about that has removed the cross, a pathway that goes around you facing your cross. Hey, follow God, come to church, and you'll have a happy life, a blessed life, and no resistance. Oh, praise God. Uh, Where's my cross? I just came from that church down the road, and they preached about the cross. Well, well, what do you mean? What cross? What are you talking about? You know, Jesus paid the price. You don't have to do anything now. There's a cross you have to face, and no matter how much you try to go around it, God will never take you around facing your cross. We might as well accept it now and give up. We might as well give up on trying to live our life and make our dreams happen and say, God, my life is yours. Because he won't get any other answer from God 
but he wants to run and direct your path. He wants you to agree, God, my life is yours. And then he'll take you where he needs you, where he wants you. And when he's ready, he'll tell you. And normally when I'm frustrated, I go to God. He says, have you dealt with what I told you to deal with? No. Well, I can't help you beyond that, son. Go take care of your business. Yeah, but that, you know that's not fair. God, are you talking to me? Well, if he's, not ta- if he's not talking to you, usually it's because he's telling you to keep doing what he told you to do. You can bother him for a new answer a thousand times, but you're going to get the same answer he gave you at the beginning because he doesn't change. He's that smart. He's that smart. Someone said, a mama told his, her daughter, when she said, God's not talking to me, Mom. I can't get him to talk to me. And she said, well, honey, sometimes when there's a test going on. The teacher is silent. You know, you might be going through a test that you have to pass. And the teacher is letting you go through the test. We're on a path where you're going to face the hard decision to follow God or follow yourself or follow other people. And we will never be able to blame our mistakes, our wrong decisions on somebody else. Not your spouse, not your parents, not even your pastor. You have, you're responsible for your life and God with you will take you down a path where he'll lead your steps. But let's be clear. In the big picture of eternity, Paul seen it. Paul had such a peace in him that in the midst of prison, in Tullium's keep, and being in that place, found peace and joy because he seen what God was working in the spirit that was not working in the natural. God is working something great in you. Your calling is no less than anyone else, whether you're a man or a woman, husband or wife. Your calling is equally as important as your spouse's. Your children's calling. You're not raising those kids to be happy. You're raising those kids to follow God. He'll take care of them. You want them to quit listening to you after a certain time so they can listen to God. Uh, That's a whole other message. Be careful. Kids don't ever listen to you anyway. They just watch you. You got to follow God. He'll take care of your family better than you ever will. The things that you think are difficult or hard, they're perfect. There's only perfection in God. It's only perfection. You say, well, yeah, if I divorce my wife and get another one, then I won't have such a hard time in following God. Yeah, you think that would work, but that's not. God stood there when you made that vow. And so now your job is to teach them the stubbornness of God through the stubbornness of you in being stubborn with God. Hey, can I dislodge you from following God so you can follow me? No, God won't let me. Well, you're so stubborn. Well, it's not my fault. It's his fault. He won't let me do that. There's husbands who think they're so control of their wife that they can tell them everything. There's churches I like that. They're called shepherding churches, I think, where you have to get permission. If you want to buy a car, you're supposed to go to your pastor and get his permission. I mean, it gets down to really ridiculous things, little things. And 
I always thought, that's a lot of work, you know, trying to tell everyone what to do like that. But that's control. People like control. And the people who submit to that, they like to give over their rights to someone else. So they're not responsible, but you're still responsible. Teach your friends, your family, your children the stubbornness of God that's his way or the highway. I'm not talking about heaven. There's a lot of people who aren't in the will of God, but they're saved. They're going to go to heaven. And God's happy with that. But you have a call in your life. Why do you think you're being trained? Why do you think you're spending time praying and fasting and worshiping? Because like Gary said, we're looking for a, a walk where God is flowing through us. What was the word? Pour, flow. Someone help me with the third one. Pour vine flow, yeah. That Christ in us, the God is pouring in his power. And the vine, Jesus, our connection to Jesus and the flow of the Spirit is to touch the world through us. It's God touching the world through us. And so what's his message? The message of the God today from what Gary taught and what's being taught now is lay your life down. That he can't use, he's not interested in your natural ability to be added to his supernatural ability. When we accept that, giving God the possible, what I can do in the natural, I give to God is what he wants, then I'm back in charge. But we're on a path of the impossible, where there's things that are impossible are happening. He's the only place we can get the impossible. We can't get it anywhere. There's no place on this earth to find the impossible. Only him, and he's looking for vessels that he can work through. Well, I'm, I'm available. Okay, God. God says, great, I'm glad you're available, son, but I need you to remove that flesh out of the way. I need you to remove the good and the bad out of the way because I don't need that. I need you, the authority. I need to flow through you, but every time I try to flow through you, there's flesh in the way. Well, can't we just do it without it? Can I keep this? Well, I need you to get rid of that. So you may wait 10 years. Okay, God, I'm ready now. You're trying to starve them out, trying to wait them out. I'm going to make you suffer, God, until you give me what I want. And he's going to say, nope, let's go back to what I told you 10 years ago. Gary said last week that he read through the blueprint and realized he'd go back 30 years and find the same instructions. Well, God, haven't we graduated from there? I don't think we'll ever graduate from praying and fasting. I don't think we'll ever graduate from that. Because God wants to flow through us. Be vessels of honor. Let's not quit. Even if you failed a thousand times, get up and keep going. Because he has a plan for you. You're important to him. Every one of you. You're important to him. And we don't want to hide and make excuses. Amen. Let's change the world. Father, we thank you today that our life is not our own. We belong to you. We yield our future to you, all of our questions, all of our struggles. And we choose to follow you. Our life is in your hands. And we thank you for loving us and believing in us so much that even when we didn't think we were worthy or useful to you, you saw that we were worthy and useful to you. Thank you for believing in us. We choose to hold on to the high call. We choose to face our cross every day, and we will not change course. You are the only one who has a right 
to tell me how to change course. My life is in your hands. Father, we thank you for that, that you are faithful and you'll never fail us. You'll never abandon us. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you for that love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. You're powerful. God's got great things for you. Let's press into him. Let's not stop. Amen. And you're dismissed. If you like prayer, you're welcome to come up to the green line. We'll pray for you. God bless you. You are released.